Good morning. Well, this morning we're going to continue our study in the book of Ephesians, and we'll be looking at specifically chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And there the Apostle Paul is praying to God, and he's asking God to give the church power. The title of our lesson is An Out-of-This-World Power. But before I talk about the power, I want to ask you this. Have you ever felt powerless? incapable of doing anything good in a particular situation to make it any better. Years ago, when we lived in Peru, we knew a family there, Kenny and Consuelo, and they had seven children. And this nine-member family lived in a house about nine feet wide by 18 feet long and maybe 11 feet tall. And this house was located in the corner of a parking lot. And what they would do is they were able to live in that house for free as long as they watched the cars to make sure that nobody would mess with them. Kenny and Consuelo always struggled with finances and income. And because of that, their family was oftentimes for long periods of time malnourished. And the evidence of that malnourishment was, was evident in their physicality in a lot of different ways. One of those being that the two younger girls, whenever they smiled, you could see that their teeth were rotting. So one day I go over to Kenny's, and the youth group is behind me about 40, 50 minutes, which in Peru means a couple of hours. And so I get there, and I'm visiting with Kenny and Consuelo, and Donna and Samantha come home from school. And Donna's running through the gate, and when she sees me, she puts on the brakes. And a look of horror and embarrassment and shame crosses her face, and then she runs into the house. But I had time to notice that her blouse had blood on it and that on the side of her neck was some dried blood. And so we went over, we asked Samantha, what's going on? What, what happened? And Samantha said, well, some kids in the street made fun of Donna's smile. And they pushed her around back and forth inside of a circle. And when Donna spoke back to him a little bit, they called her a worthless piece of street trash, which is my very nice English translation of what they really said. And then one of them hit her upside the head, and the stud of her earring pierced her neck, and that's what caused the bleeding. And as Samantha tells this story, and as I watched the family's faces, it was shocking to me that what I saw there was embarrassment and shame. And I began to realize that inside that house, that little girl was taking everything that those kids said about her to heart, as if it were true. And that the family believed it was true as well because of their situation and their circumstances, their position in life and in that culture. And I thought, how do I fix this? This is sacred ground, somebody's self-worth. What do I do? What do I say? And I was frozen. I felt powerless, and I hate to feel powerless, don't you? I want to fix it as soon as I can, get back into control, clean it all up. Powerlessness feels miserable, and it feels threatening. The good news is that as children of God, we have power to live the holy life that God's called us to. But the bad news is that oftentimes as children of God, we can forget or not quite fully grasp just how deep and wide that power is. And if you let it go... We find ourselves little by little falling back into living the same powerless life that we lived before we knew Christ. Living a powerless life 
eats away at our freedom and our confidence as Christians, and we become victims of our culture and our circumstances. At the time of Paul's prayer, the church in Ephesus was falling back into the powerless life. In their thinking, Ephesians 4, verse 17, it was futile. That same verse also tells us that there was a hardening in their hearts and that they were giving themselves over to deceitful desires and every kind of impurity and sin. And that's why Paul was so concerned. He was concerned because living a powerless life is the same as living a godless life. The question for us to ask ourselves is, what does powerless look like in me? Powerlessness may show up when circumstances are unfavorable. We feel threatened. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to address it. And that goes on for a little while, and then we begin to feel hopeless. Or powerlessness might show up in a situation where we know we're in the wrong, but we're too ashamed to admit it and make it right. And so we hide it or we blame it on someone else. Powerlessness is also being afraid of what people think of me. So much so that I won't give you my opinion or speak up and I certainly won't stand up for what is right because I'm afraid of what you might think of me when I do. When powerlessness comes, it sometimes accompanies this dialogue in our minds. A little voice that says, you're not good enough when God calls us to do the good work we as Christians are called to do. It's that voice that says, I'm not eloquent of speech. I'm, I'm not clever. I'm not smart. I, I lack knowledge. What if someone asks me a question and I can't answer it? What if I try to fix it and I just make it worse? What if when I stand up, I get knocked down? Powerless people, they tend to, they tend to blame their mess on others. The reason their life, their marriage, their child, their finances, their job, or whatever it is, is the way that it is, has nothing to do with them or their choices. It has to do with what someone else did. Maybe their parents or their spouse or their teachers. Society created the life that they're living. They have to deal with it. They don't have the power to create good in their own lives, and they don't do good, can't do good with their lives. Well, with Christians, it shouldn't be this way. We're a powerful people. But if we're so powerful, why, is it, why are we so easily convinced sometimes that we're not? And maybe the simple truth is just this. We don't believe what God says about us is true. Maybe we're taking our cues about our identity and our circumstances, about our long-term security and our safety and what we're capable of and what we're not capable of. Maybe we're taking all of those cues from Satan instead of God. There's a battle going on between Satan and God in the minds of men for the hearts of men. And God, he says... You're good. And Satan, he says, you're lacking. Satan's telling us lies. God's telling us truth. And our destiny depends upon which one of those we will believe. Satan, the liar and accuser, says in Genesis 3, in effect, you're not like God. If you separate yourself from him and his rules, you won't die. He says to God's creation at that time, he says to God's creation, living in paradise, in the garden, you are lacking. You don't even know the difference between good and evil. But if you eat this fruit, then you will. 
Really? A piece of fruit is going to do all that? But we do the same thing. Satan works to convince us that our connection with God is not adequate. It's not enough. We're still lacking, and we need something else. And then he offers us some very attractive worldly power to help us get there. Money, prestige. Maybe it's alliances with important people. Maybe it's self-gratification or possessions. And we take the bait. And when we do, we sin. And when we sin, we hurt ourselves so deeply. But we hurt those who love us and who we love the most even more. And then we know it. We know it and our failure and that sin are just eating away on us on the inside. We're miserable. And we might cry out like the son in Luke chapter 15. I'm a sinner. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Or we might cry out a little bit like Peter in Luke 5 and John 21, where he said, I'm a sinner. Away from me, Lord. Or, Lord, you know I love you, but I'm too big of a failure to ever do any of the good that you're calling me to do. Satan wants us to be convinced that we're worthless to others, powerless to do anything about it, and to disqualify ourselves from the good work that he's called us to do. Take ourselves out of the fight and run and hide. When Paul's praying for the Ephesian church, they were taking themselves out of a fight that they were perfectly capable of winning, and in reality, it already won. And so Paul prays that the believer would have the power to comprehend and to know the very depths of themselves that everything God says about us is true. Let's read Ephesians 3, verse 14 through 17b. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom all his whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So do you hear Paul kind of referring back to our identity in Christ, which he developed in chapters 1, 2, and 3? He says, for this reason. Well, for what reason? Well, the reason is stated in chapters 2 and 3. And let me just read you a few excerpts of the reason he gives. For this reason, what reason? You are the temple of the living God. In Christ, you're being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. You are the church of the living God, the holy and righteous Creator, you may approach Him with freedom and confidence. Freedom to do good works and confidence that you are good in His sight. And so Paul is saying, God lives by His Spirit in the church. And for this reason, Paul says, I'm praying that you will be able to fully live into all that that means. Let's read on. For this reason... I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. Now, the Father we know from chapter 1 and chapter 2 has every spiritual blessing in his possession. And he chooses to give every spiritual blessing in his possession to us. And we possess it. And every spiritual blessing listed there is reserved and secured for us by the Holy Spirit who guarantees it, who lives in us. I think we have every spiritual blessing. He blesses us with forgiveness of sin, which means you're released from sin's penalty so that you can live in sin no more. And that means that He's blessed you with redemption from death and restoration back into life. 
wages of sin is death. And we as sinners, it's what we deserve. We wronged our Creator. Sin leads to our death and our separation from Him. But it doesn't wipe out our worth in His eyes. You're still worth a great deal to Him. But you're lost to Him. And so He comes down from heaven looking for you, to restore you. He comes searching and He finds you in your mess. And He takes the responsibility upon Himself to fix it. He redeems you by allowing His Son, Jesus Christ, to pay your debt and bestow upon you His righteousness. It means that the penalty of your sin goes on to Him and He pays for it when He dies on the cross. And it means that the reward of His righteousness goes on to you as a gift. And with that reward of His righteousness upon you, God sees you as part of His holy family. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might be the righteousness of God. And in Him we are part of His family. And so He blesses us with the heavenly name. The name of the heavenly family. We're adopted into His family. Ephesians 1 and 2. And, and there Paul makes it very clear that as a saved child of God, you are wanted, you are elevated, you are seated with Him in the heavenly realms, but not as a guest, not as a visitor, but as a son or as a daughter. You take your rightful place around His table. You and I in Christ are seen as sons and daughters. You're a part of the family of God. You are not a fraud in His eyes. And so Paul prays to the most powerful being in the universe who did all that for us. And he says, Father, give them power. Christ may dwell in their hearts. Christ, the one who loved us unto death. Christ, the one who rules at the Father's right hand, who has all authority and power and dominion and rule and his title is greater than any title that ever has been or ever will be. And with all of that power, he loves us. He serves us. He secures for us what God wants, our salvation and our place in his family. Christ who is without sin, who gifted me with his righteousness. Father, says Paul, give them the out-of-this-world power of identity in Christ. Give it to them in their heart, in the essence of who they are, that they know and hold on to that and filter everything that happens to them and everything that they do through that reality. Now, there are a lot of things that can dwell in our hearts. Remember that this is what we said uh, the battle was about. God and Satan fighting in the minds of men for the hearts of men. And, and here's why that's so important. What resides in our heart is what we know to be true about ourselves. So what dwells in your heart? Is it shame? Is it blame? Is it hypocrisy? Or is it your identity in Christ which says, I am holy and blameless in His sight. I am a child of God. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. What dwells in your heart affects everything else.
Paul says, Father, give the church power so that Christ is victorious in their heart. Let Christ win in the heart of the church, he prays. But he's not done. He goes on to pray that we would grasp the power that we share in the community of Christ. Let's read in 317b to 19. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know his love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And so here Paul prays that the Ephesians would have the power to truly comprehend the love of Christ and be filled with all the fullness of God. And we mentioned earlier how Christ pays our sin penalty. But, and he does that on the cross. And what we're meant to understand here with Christ's love for us is that in that same event, that cross event, we get to understand why he did it. Why he would do that, pay such a high cost unto himself for you and me. Why would anybody do that? Especially if they knew what I had done. And so if you don't know the unconditional love of Christ, you don't know the power of Christ in your life because you'll doubt it. And the reason why you'll doubt it is because you know you got it and then you'll do something really horrible again. It's almost like I spit in the face of God and wasn't grateful for the salvation He gave me. And so surely He wouldn't give it to me again and you doubt. But you've got to know the reason He pays such a high price for you is because He loves you. And you're valuable to him. And you can't do anything about it. You can't change it. You can't alter it. You can't make it so. You can't make it not so. It is just as he is. He loves you unconditionally. Romans 5, 6 gives us confidence as believers. It says, you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Brothers and sisters, on our worst day, we have this power. The power of the knowledge of Christ's unconditional love for us. And so I can face my greatest sin because God's Love to me through Christ makes me powerful to do so. I can face the consequences of my biggest mistakes and work to make them right because I have the power of Christ's unconditional love in me to help me to do that. If I dare to believe it, if I can just trust it, the reality is that I will never ever face anything in my life without that power of Christ's love. My worst nightmare, my greatest hurt, my weakest moment, my greatest loss, my greatest fears can all be faced with love, joy, peace, and hope. Because as Paul says in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul wants us to grasp that truth deeply. And one more along with it. He wants us to grasp the love of Christ but he wants us to do so together with all the saints. Paul doesn't just want them to grasp the power of the love of Christ at work in the individual. He wants them to grasp the power of the love of Christ at work in the church. 
In fact, the context of the letter itself seems to imply that you can't really know the power of Christ apart from the church. You can't experience the fullness of God apart from the church. Not the fullness of God He wants to give you. And so Paul wants the church to grasp the love of Christ and the power of God so that the church can live into the fullness of God, helping one another. This means that the church has out-of-this-world power to build one another up in love as each part does its work. And so when we face the trials of life and the Christian responsibilities that God calls us to, we shouldn't think about what we alone can or cannot do. We should think about what the power of God can do in us and through us and for us as the church and then trust and obey. What do you imagine would be possible if we would truly believe everything that God says about the church and His power at work in us, if we really believe that was true. Maybe we approach it this way. Ask yourselves, what would I see made whole in my life if I just had the power to do it? And then imagine what that wholeness might look like for you and your family. And then consider this. God can do much more good than we can ever ask or imagine if we'll just trust His power at work within us. Listen to how Paul ends this prayer in verse 20 through 21. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. That's true, isn't it? I mean, if you ever looked back at your life, maybe where you came from and took note of all the times that God came through for you, maybe look back and see how He was faithful time and time again. And have you ever, in doing that, kind of said, I never imagined I'd be where I am today. Some of us have said... I never expected I'd be alive today. And some of us just don't talk about the past because we don't want our kids to know that stuff. I never imagined what God would do for me. And then, reflecting on all that, maybe you voice a little prayer that goes something like this. Thank you, God, for your son. Thank you, God, for your people. And thank you, God, for the power to stand before you in peace. I felt powerless, and I threw up a little prayer to God, Lord help me, and I walked into that house, and I could hear her sobbing back there in the corner in the darkness, and I just started talking about God's love for her, and who he created her to be, and every unique, special, sweet thing I'd ever seen in her life, I mentioned it, talked to her about it. When I ran out of things to say, I just started repeating them, and understand my Spanish wasn't that great at the time. And so uh, I had few words. And then I remembered I had in my pocket these two little pictures that my daughters had, had colored for Samantha and Donna. And I pulled them out and I said, Donna, look, I've got these gifts here. Elena and Caitlin, they love you. And they wanted to take some time to make a gift for you. And then I felt this movement in the darkness. And this little girl ran and she hugged me. And... I hugged her back, and she gave me a wet little kiss on the cheek, and then she ran outside. 
And I thought, what was it that I said that finally did the trick? And then I realized the youth group had just shown up. <laughs> and she ran out, and they by this time knew what had happened. And the brother picked her up and put her on his shoulder. You would have thought she was a princess, and it was her birthday. And the church loved her. And the shame went away, and the smile came back. There is an out-of-this-world power at work in the church. It's the love of God in Christ Jesus, and it can take a bruised and a broken soul and nourish it back to life. Is your soul bruised and broken? Do you feel powerless? Wherever you feel powerless, that's a little space that the love of Christ Jesus hasn't quite gotten to yet. And for someone here this morning... You may not have received his offering of salvation yet. He loves you. He died for you. He wants to give you power to heal and to become a force for good in this world. If you're in the place that you would love to make him your Lord and Savior this morning, being baptized into his name and washing away your sin, that opportunity exists this morning. And you could come as we stand and as we sing.